Good evening, and continue our series through Romans. Let's pause, let's pray, and then get a cookie. Now's the time. Thank you, Mary, for those cookies. They're amazing. Let's pray. God, tonight, once again, we ask for your insight and your Spirit's work in our lives as we look at these passages in Romans. Lord, help us to understand clearly what your intention was when you gave them to your servant Paul, and as he was declaring these things, what his intention was for the church, and what is the application for us today. May we not uh, remove ourselves too far from what is taking place May we hear your voice in the things that we look at tonight. We again thank you for this time. We do ask your blessing on Alex, Lord, that you would give him strength and focus for the heavy workload he has at school plus work. And Lord, for those who are in our community, who are struggling, who are going through various trials and difficulties in their lives, Lord. We pray for mercy. We pray for strength. We pray, Lord, for your work in their lives through this time, for our family and our loved ones, Lord. We entrust them to you. And thank you again that you are our God and you've brought us into your family. We do thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Again, we need to kind of touch where we've been and where we're going. Last week, Paul kind of was going over that not all the Israelites who were born to Abraham were actually Israelites the way that he was talking about or part of the covenant promise. He listed some. He talked how not all of Abraham's children actually were brought into this promise. Isaac was, but we know that Ishmael wasn't, Jacob was, Esau wasn't. We saw that there was already this kind of, uh, if you want to say, revelation to some or uh, remnant is the word that he's going to use in this chapter that there were a few. And and so we're going to look at that word remnant because We need to understand what it meant and what Paul means when he talks about those things so that we can understand it uh, clearly. This chapter kind of breaks up from verses 1 through 10 and then 11 through the end. I mean, you could break it up more, but there's really two basic points that he's talking about. The first, from 1 through 10, he's saying, can the Jews be saved? And his answer is, of course. And then from 11 through 32, he says, can any more Jews be saved? And it's like, yes, of course. That's kind of what he's talking about throughout this chapter, but he's definitely hitting on some important things. And then tonight we're going to really look into, okay, so what is God doing with the Jews? There's some passages here um, that we've probably heard used in a very apocalyptic way. Um, towards the nation of Israel, and we're going to look and see, is that the accurate way to look at these things and how we should look at it based on the context? But let's read uh, verses, 
Let's read 1 through 6 at the beginning. Paul writing, and he said, I ask then, did God reject his people? Now, he's asking this because of all the things that he said in the last chapter concerning Israel, that they were a disobedient, obstinate people, that God was going to have to deal with them. He was going to have to judge them. He said that he was going to make them envious uh, by the nations around them. So he's asking, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And he mentions the tribe of Benjamin, and he, he does this probably because this is something that happened also with King Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21. When he was anointed king, they were like, can you be king? He says, yes, I, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. It's kind of Saul of Tarsus, Saul the king, Saul of Tarsus, who is now Paul. Hey, I am an Israelite just like Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so he's giving a little bit of historical uh, reference to his genealogy, as well as a connection to the first king that was taking place. Because at that time, they had believed that God was forsaking them. We don't have a king. And God says, no, you're my people. I have a king for you. I haven't forgotten you. And Paul is saying he hasn't forgotten the Jews still. Is he through with the Jews? Not at all. I'm a Jew, okay? I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was the Lord's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. And so here Paul brings up this idea of a remnant. Okay, he's bringing up this idea of there are a few that were selected. And he talks about this example with Elijah. And in the Hebrew mind, the idea of a remnant was kind of building up to a few people. And so you had a lot, but it always went up to a few. And so it kind of narrowed down. There's a remnant, there are a few. There are these thousands who have left, who haven't bowed to the, their need to be all. They're, they're still faithful, but it's few. And the idea of a remnant of grace actually picks up to where this narrows down because this remnant, this few, came to a point and it narrowed down to actually one, and that was Christ. But from Christ, the remnant looks more like this, where it started at one And now it is open so that many can come in. So God was very specific in calling Abraham and then giving his blessing to Abraham's son Isaac. It's through him that this is going to happen. And then through Isaac, it was Jacob and and all these things that took place. So God was directing this to get to this point. This remnant was pointing to the one, to Christ. But the remnant of grace is different. Because when he says the idea of, then it cannot be based on works. 
Remember the idea of works is obedience to the covenant agreement that marked them out ethnically. It is those things, the works aren't just being morally good, we've talked about. It's those things that identified them as Jews, as children of Abraham. And so, Paul is saying, Israel, is God done with them? No, he's not done with them. Is he still reaching out to them? Yes, he still is. There was always this remnant, and now the remnant is continuing. Verse 7, he continues the idea. What then? What the people of Israelites sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent over. And so he gives this kind of strong illustration in what Paul is doing here. He's saying, okay, did the bomb squad, remember that illustration, Israel was the bomb squad. Their job was to take the bomb and get it to Calvary, basically. How did they do that? Well, by them being God's chosen people, God magnified sin through this nation. How did he magnify sin? He used the law and their inability to keep the law. And through this nation, he pointed or magnified sin, illuminated it so that the world could see that sin was dealt with by Christ. They were, again, that illustration I could use, they were the bomb squad. Their job was to take the bomb to Calvary and then they were to leave it there. The problem was they weren't leaving it there. They were still holding on saying, no, we're the bomb squad. This is our bomb. We're not going to let it go. We are God's people. So he's saying, did they blow up with the bomb? Did the bomb squad get blown up with the bomb that they were supposed to carry out? Because the judgment was because of Israel's stubbornness. But there was to be a remnant, a few that would be by grace. And that few would turn into more. Few have been narrowed down to a point to the cross, and now the remnant from the cross can actually grow. And so his point here in these verses is saying they were stubborn. They resisted God's grace. The remnant had to come down to the one. The bomb squad did its job, but then it's ended here at the one, and from here the grace is going to take over. So what Israel's purpose was was to do just this, make the world aware of their sin. Christ dealt with the sin of the world. And from here, God's remnant can begin to grow. So then the question might be asked, well, okay, if, if God's dealing with these people, you know, if God gave them over to this spirit of stupor, their eyes could not see, their ears could not hear, as he's quoting these passages and just getting them to understand, this isn't something that's new. This is something that has been in your scriptures that you should know about. So if these are the things here, then it's not a surprise to you. But then 
if this has been a snare and if their eyes are closed, again, he asks, verse 11, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And he says, not at all. In other words, is God through with them? I mean, man, if they're blind, if they can't see, if God has given them over to the stupor, if God has used them to be a magnifying glass of what sin is, and now they've come to this remnant, to this end, then is God done with them? Have they stumbled so much as to fall? And this is carrying on the idea. They stumbled. Remember the corner of Christ was the stumbling block? Well, have they stumbled so far as to not be able to recover? And he says, not at all. And he says, instead, rather because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Interesting. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And so he says that he has brought them to this place because of their transgression, salvation is brought to the Gentiles. Again, the remnant now is growing to the world. Salvation is moved out, and it's happened to make Israel envious. Israel has acted out the sin of Adam. We talked about that already. And as a result, salvation has come to the nations. The idea of make them envious comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. And he quoted it in chapter 10, verse 19, where he says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. No understanding of what? Of their law, of who they are, of the things that God has placed on them. Why would God say that? Why is the intention to make them envious? Paul takes the idea from Deuteronomy of Israel seeing other nations take their inheritance, their blessing, and turns it into seeing other these non-nations, these nations that didn't know God, to take these other nations as taking their blessing so that they will say, hey, those blessings are ours. We want that. We want them to say, hey, that party that you're at, that's my party. I'm supposed to be there, but I'm not. And so it's to make them envious, to see the blessings that God is now giving to the Gentile world and for them to say, hey, that's supposed to be our blessing. That's supposed to belong to us. And and so once again, the understanding, one God, okay, that one God revealed himself to their forefather, Abraham. Promised him, made a covenant with him, Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Okay, so through this one God revealing himself to this one person, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are supposed to be blessed. And so he's trying to get them to see again, this belongs to you. This is your inheritance. This is something that is supposed to belong to you. 
And so the definition, monotheistic theology is we have the one God who is involved with us. In fact, he gave us his promise, his covenant. And now he has called us through our forefather election. We are his people. That promise belongs to us as his people. And that promise is going to see us to the end where God brings us out of exile, which is what they were in and had been throughout history, into restoration or resurrection we talked about. And so this is what their hope is. You see, the Jews in the first century were leaning forward, waiting for that restoration. They were looking for God to deliver them from these pagan Gentiles and bring them into their promise that was given to Abraham. And so now Paul is saying, what I want you guys to see is this promise that you've been waiting for, it's happening now. The party is started. There's the party favors, there's the hats, the horns, and you're on the inside looking at the party going, or on the outside looking at the party on the inside saying, hey, that's our party. We're supposed to have that restoration. And that envy is to provoke them to want to actually be a part of it. And so Paul is using that passage in Deuteronomy 32 that he quoted again last week in chapter 10 to say, hey, this belongs to you. I want you to envy it. So thinking about that and and that promise, just to bring a little practicality into these things, if we were trying to move forward and talk about this passage in a, a way that relates to all of us, God has brought restoration to us. He has brought us into this new family, a true family that is his family. We should be living lives that cause others to envy what we have because we have fellowship with the creator, because we are not in exile We are not lost and in bondage under, even if we have a government that is horrific over us, we still are free people before the eyes of God. We live in this freedom so that people should see our lives and say, I want this kind of life. Are we living that? Do people look at our lives and say, man, I really would like to have that kind of life? Or are we complainers? Or are we people who are miserable? Or are we people who want but never are satisfied because we don't realize what we have? You know, it's always amazing when you go out of the country to places that are more impoverished, how happy people seem. So many times. There was a video that was someone's... I don't know where I saw it, but I saw this video where this guy goes into this place and asks people for a slice of pizza. He just goes in there and he goes, hey, can I have a slice of pizza? And all these people say, no, get out of here. You can't have a slice of my pizza. Hey, can I have a No. And like four times this guy gets just, no, you can't have a pizza. And then they go and they give a pizza to this guy who's homeless. And he's there on the street with his shopping bag or a cart, you know, he's sitting there eating a pizza and the same guy comes up to him and goes, hey man, do you have an extra slice of pizza? Can I have a slice of pizza? And the guy says, yeah. And he gives him a slice of pizza. It's like, 
something's going on here. Right? This guy who's homeless has more generosity than these people who had plenty. Something was going on inside of them that you would look at and say, well, I don't like that. And you look at him and you say, I do like that. So it's not a matter of status monetarily. It was condition of what's happening in the heart. And this guy who's homeless probably has a lot more empathy to someone who's in need. Why? Because he's living there. And so Paul is trying to get the Jewish people to see and be empathetic with the party that's taking place with those who are now part of God's family. And the question should ask us, are we doing the same thing? Are we inviting people to that kind of envy? And as he says to them, you know, in verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much more greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So riches for the world. That's election. He's been talking about that, just to remember. He's been talking about election. He talked about it in chapter 9 a lot. Election for the world, or blessings for the world, riches for the world, belong to Abraham. He was the elect of God. That has now been opened up to the world. And see, Paul's starting to do something. He's starting to redefine monotheism. He's redefining election. He's redefining resurrection, or that restoration and return from exile. And he's bringing that about here. And so, these things are there. Israel is acting out, again, the sin of Adam that he had... Israel acting out the sin of Adam has had a healing effect on the rest of the world. Who comes to the place where Adam ended up and bears the pain of the world? Jesus, the last Adam. Israel came to this place to bring restoration for the world. They were to magnify the sin, to illuminate that sin. They were the bomb squad to make the world aware of that and now bring that healing. You see, the Messiah is what Israel was pointing to. Romans 5, Israel is the people of the Messiah according to the flesh. Jesus is... Israel in the flesh, incarnate. The incarnation of what Israel was supposed to be. And so he's trying to get them to see this promise that came to a point is now continuing in an open direction, but it's still a promise that is yours. You haven't been excluded. In verse 13, he says, I am talking to you Gentiles. When he says to the Gentiles, it was believed that about 50% of the Gentile Christians were actually proselytites at that time. And remember, when Claudius, the ruler of Rome, kicked out the Jews from Rome, those proselytites were able to remain because they weren't of the Jewish ethnicity. And so here you have these Gentiles who are proselytites who believe in the Hebrew God who were there in Rome, they were probably the first among those to come to faith in Christ. Why? Because 
they had a connection to understanding who the Messiah was. And so now you have a, a church that is starting from these proselytes. And remember, when they were in the synagogue, they were still in some sense a second-class citizen. Oh, you're a proselyte, but you're still not one of us. But now you can have your cake and eat it too, in a sense. Now you can have this understanding of the Messiah and you're welcomed into the family. And so now you have these Christians who have moved from being just proselytes, now have faith in Jesus, and now they're the ones that are running the show, so to speak. They're the ones who are probably the majority. And then these Jews start coming in and they start saying, you know what? We don't really need you anymore. We'll take it from here. This is our faith now. And so Paul is addressing these Gentiles. And so he makes it real specific because remember at the beginning, he's talking to Jews who have come to faith. He's now talking to Gentiles who are proselytes who've come to faith. And he's also including Gentiles who just come to faith. You've got this extreme that he's talking to. And so now this is very specific to the Gentiles. He's talking to them, but most likely it is those Gentiles who were proselytes, who are saying now, hey, this is our faith. We're a Gentile church now. We don't have to meet your rules, your standards. We understand this gospel, and so we're going to take it from here. And he says, I am the apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, and I take pride, he says in verse 13, that is, I glorify in my ministry. What ministry? Apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride. I take this seriously. I'm, I'm here to make this known. In verse 14, he says, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people. And that word there, it's literally my own flesh. And remember the word for flesh is the word in the Greek, sarx, S-A-R-X. And it's important that we understand that because that's exactly what he was talking about in chapter 7. He's saying, I have done this somehow to arouse my own flesh to envy and to save some of them. Who is he saving? Some of his own flesh? He means those who are of his own ethnicity. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 21 and 22 says, To those not having the law became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Who is saving some? Paul. I know, you're supposed to say Jesus, right? But it's that I might save some. He does the same thing here. He says, I might somehow arouse my own people, my own flesh to envy and save some of them. Now, he doesn't say save all of them, but he says save some of them. Because he was a realist. It would be great if he could save all of them, but he knows that he can save some of them. And he takes it personal. 
this is my responsibility. I know we like to say God's the one who brings salvation, and he's the one who does bring salvation. He brought Christ. It is God's spirit who gives us illumination and understanding. So we talked about with Joel. You know, I, I will give them my spirit. But it is our job to save some. Not that we provide the means of salvation. We bring salvation to them. And so there's something very powerful taking place in his words. He's taking this job very seriously. I am the apostle to the Gentiles, and I hope to bring envy and by some means save some. And the idea, again, of that flesh is really important because when he says my own people, he is talking about his flesh and blood. Remember in chapter 7, verse 18, He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my flesh. It's the word sarks. We talked about it doesn't dwell in me that is in my flesh, my people, my ethnicity. It doesn't dwell in that for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. His flesh is in rebellion against the gospel. That's what he is talking about in chapter 7. And it makes perfect sense now when he talks again about my own flesh. Why am I doing the things I don't want? What do you mean you don't want to do? Well, I want to further God's restorating process, but now I find myself an enemy of Christ. And so I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. That's exactly what Paul was doing. He was doing the will of God, but he was not doing the will of God when he was persecuting the church, even though he thought he was doing the will of God. See, he's identifying with his flesh, not just his body, his people. And he uses that word throughout this book in this way. And that's where we have problems because we translate it sinful nature. And he's like, well, no, I didn't mean that. I meant my flesh. I mean my people. I mean, I'm talking as if I was one of them and giving you the understanding, the frustration that they are in, wanting to be God's elect people, recognizing we're in the exile, looking for that promise and that resurrection, but I'm fighting against what God has done to bring that about. Oh, wretched man, who who can deliver me from this body, this flesh of sin? Thank God through Jesus Christ. So the flesh, the ethnicity, they're still dealing in this lost thing, but God has now given me this new restoration that I have been brought into this new remnant. And that's of grace and brought into that family. And so he's really bringing this to the other side so that they can see that. And we see that it's Paul taking this personally, where he realizes that I have the job to do and I hope to provoke some of them to envy so that I might save some of them. And he says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, their acceptance will be life from the dead. Their acceptance, their restoration, Ezekiel 37 is resurrection. God will bring them back, the life from the dead. Who's that a picture of? It's a picture of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For if we, while we were God's enemies were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
We are enemies reconciled to him through the death. And so when he talks about the death here, he's again bringing them to that same place. Their acceptance but be but life from the dead. Their acceptance has to come through the person of Christ. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And now he is going to bring them an understanding again of this idea that God is going to restore them and is using the root, which is Christ, to bring that restoration. The idea of resurrection now, restoration is being defined through Christ. Remember in Ezekiel 37, verses 26 and 28, it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. I will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. Increase their numbers. The remnant isn't getting smaller. It's changed direction. I will increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them. The nations will know when I make Israel holy. Well, now the nations are knowing, how did he make Israel holy? The resurrection that took place in Christ was the resurrection that they were leaning for, but it happened right here. The nations, the blessing of the nations happen in Christ. The blessings of the nations are taking place right now through the person of Christ. And that is why, as he says there about the root, you know, if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is why he said that salvation is to the Jew first and then the same way to the Greek. Don't give up on Jewish evangelism. You proselytes who came to faith and say, we don't need them anymore. We're going to just deal with this ourselves. He says, no, the root was holy. The root, the promise of God that went to the election of Abraham was fulfilled in Christ. This is holy. This is where you're coming from. You can't exclude the promise of God, it's all connected to that. So don't you dare give up on Jewish evangelism. God always wants the Jews to be part of the true covenant family. And so he's talking now about the root and he's going to give this understanding and illustration of how that takes place and how that looks. Verses 17, let's read to 24. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, who's he talking to right now? The Gentiles, right? And you, talking to those Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. And that's really at the root of everything that he's trying to get at here in this this book. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And you can imagine a hush just taking place as they read this. Like, whoa, that's a pretty heavy statement. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. I love that. We'll talk about that a little bit. The kindness and the sternness of God. Consider the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, if if they do not persist, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. Who's that? Who is the you? If they will not be, that's the Jewish people. Okay, if they will not continue in unbelief, the Jewish people, they will be grafted back in. So it wasn't a final thing. Saying if they will not continue in unbelief, they will be granted, grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, If you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, I don't know a whole lot about horticulture. Actually, I don't know anything about it. But from what I've read, the wild tree, you don't graft the unwild or the one that's tame or whatever you would call it, the one that actually has been groomed to bear fruit, you don't graft that into a wild, otherwise the wild one will overtake it. Okay, you graft the wild one into what is tame already or is cultured, whatever it is, and that starts to produce the better fruit. And so he's saying, you guys are wild. You've been grafted into the root that was holy Don't think that God can't take these branches that actually are more fitting for that naturally and produce something holy. And so he's saying they can fit back in. You're the ones who have been grafted in. You are the wild ones who have been brought back into this place. And so he's helping them to understand their position. This is, again, God dealing with them. When he says, do not, verse 18, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. This is the rhetorical thrust of the whole letter so far. Don't boast over the branches. The branches aren't what you boast in. You boast in the root. You boast in God. Your ethnicity, whether Jew or Gentile, is not important. That's not what brings you into the covenant family is this ethnicity. It's only because of God's grace that you are brought in. And then he makes the same point in verse 19. He says, you will say then branches are broken off so that I could be grafted in. The same point is made to the letters of the churches in Revelation. Unless you repent and come and take your candlestick or unless you come back to the place where you belong, I will take that candlestick out of place. And he's telling them there that if you don't take your place the way it's supposed to, granted, but if you were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith, don't be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you. If you won't take the proper place, God will remove you 
from that place. Just like he said in Revelation chapter 3. I'm warning you, if you don't repent and come to your first love, if you don't deal with these things, then I'm going to remove this candlestick. This doesn't mean that the individual believers of those churches will lose their salvation. It means that unless those churches, when he's talking revelations, shape up, stop their arrogance, their pride, there will no longer be a church in those places. And that's what came to pass. And that's the the warning that Paul is giving here. The the Jews were saying that because we are Jews, we are automatically God's people. The Gentiles are saying a similar thing. We are the Gentiles. We are now the ones who have been grafted in. We are God's people. And he says, no, you can be removed just like they were removed if you do not continue in faith. It's not really talking about losing salvation. It's talking about the work of God will stop taking place through you if you don't recognize this. Because God will remove you just like he removed them. He will put them aside and he will put you aside. He's really dealing with the same thing that he dealt in Revelation chapter 3. And I don't believe it's talking about losing our salvation or not. When he says, consider the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. What is God's kindness? It's his grace. It's Christ. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God dealing with our sin. It is God working on our behalf. It is not because of who we are, our ethnicity, because of what we do. It's because of what God has done, his promise fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so that's what he's bringing us to this place. It's not what you have done. It's what God has done in you. It's his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. And then he says, if they, who? It's the Jews, If they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. So let's think about this, what he said, because this is going to lead us on to the place where there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding. If they, the Jews, can come back in, and if Paul is trying to make them envious so that he can save some, That's the frame of mind that we need to step into this next verse and the next passages of verses. Because I don't know, maybe you have a title over verse 25. Does anyone have in their Bible it say something over there? What does it say? All Israel will be saved. saved. What did he just say? Okay. Unless they come back in, then they can come in. Now, is he making a different statement? He's just written, and if anything, he's hinted that Jews could be saved, some of them. Is he changing his mind now and going to say, well, all of them are going to be? Right now, only some of them can, but later on, all of them are going to be? Is that what's taking place? I think not. And so, let's read some of these verses, starting in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, 
as it is written. They, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take their sins away their sins. Okay. Well, he just said all Israel will be saved. So that's why it's there, right? Okay. Let's look at it. First of all, when he says, don't be ignorant of this mystery. This mystery and the idea of mystery is always something made known in Christ. The mystery of God is made known in Christ. Whenever Paul talks about mystery, he's talking about God being revealed in Christ. Okay, so we have to understand that this is taking place in Christ. And then it's really important that we see in verse 26 when it says, and in this way. There are some translations that say, then this will happen. They don't say in this way, they just say, and then this will happen, depending on the translation. But that's really what this hinges on, is in what way is all Israel going to be saved? And he quotes some scriptures. In Jewish literature, well, first let's back up a little bit. In this way is different than so then. All of Israel is a common and well-known phrase in Jewish context. He says, all Israel. It was something that was in the Mishnah, their writings about the law. In the Mishnah, it would say, all Israel has a share in the age to come, and then they would go on and list exceptions. So they would say, all Israel, but then they would say, except for these people. And so the idea of all Israel is part of a rhetoric that it's the people of God just like he said in Galatians chapter 16, where Paul says that the Israel of God, and by that he means both Jew and Gentile alike. And so Paul here is redefining the meaning of the world Israel, which is really what he's been doing all along. When he says not all Israel are Israel, Well, he just said Israel, the people, but then he said Israel and he's defining it differently. And that's exactly what he did in these two verses. Brothers and sisters, that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in. That Israel is dealing with ethnicity, the people. Not all Israel are Israel. We're dealing with ethnicity and then we're dealing with promise. And he does the same thing here. And in this way, all Israel will be saved after he just mentioned the Gentiles have come in. And so he's redefining Israel as being God's covenant people. All Israel will be saved, all of God's covenant people. Not everyone who is in ethnicity Israel. He just said some. He's not changing his mind saying, well, one day everyone's going to be. It's inconsistent with what he's been saying. There's no Jew, no Greek. It's inconsistent what he just said, that he's trying to provoke them to envy so that by some means some of them can be saved, but it is consistent what he has been saying. Not all who call themselves Israel are really Israel. 
So, here in verse 25, he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about the mystery, what's revealed in Christ, so that you don't become conceited, you don't think yourself better than them, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Israel, the ethnic ethnic people, have experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in, and this way, with the Gentiles coming in, all Israel will be saved, as it was written. Then he goes on, and he quotes some scriptures, okay? As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godless away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In this way, he's doing this thing. Notice the deliverer will come from Zion, not to Zion. This is not apocalyptic scripture talking about the end days when Jesus is going to come back. This is talking about Jesus who has come from Zion, not going to Zion. And so, this idea of them hardening their hearts that he says in verse 25, hardening is what happens when people refuse God's mercy until they are ripe for God's judgment. That's what hardening is. He talked about that in chapter 2, the judgment for the unrepented heart. It was true for Pharaoh. Pharaoh very well you know, hardened his heart. And this could apply, too, to what happened to the Jews in AD 70 when Rome annihilated Jerusalem. And this hardening of their hearts, they resisted the Messiah, they resisted the Messiah, they resisted the Messiah, and then judgment comes. And so he's talking about this hardening of the heart. And what it is, again, is hardening is something that happens when people refuse God's mercy. How are they refusing God's mercy? Because God's mercy took place on the cross through Jesus Christ. Okay, so what is he saying? In Jewish literature about God's righteousness, you find people asking, how is God in the right? How is God righteous if the Gentile world is so wicked and we are suffering at their hands. Surely God should step in and judge the Gentiles. That's common thought in Jewish literature at this time. How can God be right? He's got to deal with this wrong. Why? Because of the promise. That's the righteousness of God. We've been talking about all this time. The answer is that God is righteous. He will judge eventually, but right now he is withholding judgment which is like what he did with Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember all the plagues. And it had the effect of hardening the hearts of those who were against God's work so that when the final judgment did come and they saw it, then others would see it and actually turn to God. So the hardening of the heart is so that God can bring the judgment because they're resisting God, they're resisting God, they're resisting God. When God finally brings judgment in this case, then they will see God's goodness all along. When they left Egypt, in chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 38, it said many more or a mixed multitude left Egypt. Why were Egyptians with the Jews? Because they saw the judgment that God brought onto Egypt and they said, we're with you. We see the judgment of God and we're going to be with you. Genesis 15, 16, it says, For the sin of Am- Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 
God was waiting for that fullness of their rejection of his goodness to come to place so that he could bring judgment and everyone would say, God's just. That is something that we believe God will do again. As judgment comes into the world, it'll be when everyone says, yeah, the world needs judging. And God's just judgment will be seen as true. The same thing is true at the cross. The judgment took place there. We see God's judgment, his goodness, and we turn there. So here are the Jews who are hardened towards Christ and the new covenant that God has established. And anyone who says there, anyone who stays there in that place of hardening their heart against his covenant stays in the place of hardening like Pharaoh. But Paul's job is to call out to those who are there and say, hey, look, there's a party going on. You guys are hardening your heart. You're resisting this. I want you to see that God has brought restoration. I want you to see what God is doing to make them envious. And anyone who wants can leave that side, the hardening, and come into the new covenant family. And then he quotes a couple of passages here. The deliverer from Zion, he says. He quotes Isaiah 59, Isaiah 2, connected to Micah 4, Jeremiah 31, 33, and Isaiah 27, 9. And what are all these passages about? They are about the eschatological restoration of the eschatological restoration of the people of God. Then, when restoration takes place, the Gentiles will come in. All these scriptures are talking about what God is going to do after exile and bring the world, make the remnant huge, make the people open to receiving this. That's what's going to happen when they come in. These are not passages about the second coming because the deliverer will come from Zion, not to Zion. The definition of the Gentile mission is being explained here. Out of Zion will go out the word of the Lord, and this by means of turning the godless away from Jacob, saving some of the Jews that are there. Okay, let's try and close this up here. And so this is the covenant. It's not a system of national privilege by either Jews or Greeks. And that's what he says in verse 27. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When are sins taken away in covenant theology? when the covenant is renewed after exile. And so this is covenant theology. When is the sin removed? After exile. Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and I will be they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is the meaning of covenant theology. God brings restoration. That's what Jeremiah was talking about. All this is focused on Christ now, the covenant is renewed, the Gentiles are coming in, and the Jews are always welcome into this new family. They are always welcome. They're never like, no, you can't come, you had your chance. They are still welcome in. It does not mean that one day all the Jews are going to get saved. I know you may have heard Bible studies like that. It's just not here. It's not in this passage. He's not talking about that last time. 
end time that he's looking for when salvation is coming is something that happened in Christ. And so, he goes on, verse 28, and he says, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. That's an interesting verse. Enemies for your sake. They are the bomb squad. They are the ones who revealed sin. They are the ones who took the bomb to the cross, but they were holding on to it. They were enemies for your sake. Again, God is going to use them to understand and magnify this idea of sin. Okay, But just because they were doing that, they are still not the enemies to God. They are, as far as election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. The patriarchs beginning with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is not individualistic. When he goes on, he says, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. This is dealing with nations. God's promise to Israel, it's not going to be removed. He still loves them and they can come to him anytime. This is how he has revealed himself. God is not saving the Jews in a different way that he is saving the Gentiles. It's still through his promise. It's the same promise. It hasn't changed. And that's why he says, verse 30, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. You, the Gentiles, in your pagan ways, in your disobedient ways, all those things, you were once at that time disobedient and you received mercy as a result of what? The bomb squad. We're showing you what sin looks like. We're going to take it to Calvary and there it's going to explode. Okay? They dealt with it. You're there because of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may receive now, receive mercy of God's mercy to you. So this isn't at the end of time for the Jewish nation. This is what's supposed to be taking place right now. It's something that they're supposed to be doing. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Jews, and Gentiles, neither Jew nor Greek can say that they have earned this. It is mercy alone that we have earned these things. Then he goes into this doxology, closing out this portion. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who would have known God was doing all of this. And notice his mercy is more inclusive. It is bigger than we ever imagined. This remnant that we thought was small, God is now making it huge. He's enlarging it. Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a great statement. He's dealing with the Jewish monotheistic beliefs. 
about their God. And Paul is redefined monotheism because the definition is now focused on Jesus, on the cross, and on the spirit by whom new life is given to God's people. Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one. Remember, he brought the Gentiles into that. There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, Lord is one. He is one over everybody. And their idea of God was connected to them as a people, and he's broadening that, says, no, through Christ, it's connected to the world. He is now redefining election. It is again focused on Jesus on the cross and by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 10, verse 13, he says, I will pour my spirit, says the Lord, quoting from Joel, on all people. Election was us, our ethnicity, Abraham. We are God's elect. He says, no, Everyone who is in Christ is now elect. And we talked about that in chapter 9. He's also redefining eschatology because Israel longed for covenant vindication, which would mean renewal, restoration, and blessing for all the nations. And now it has happened in Christ. So he's just redefined how they think of God, how they think of the idea of election, and how they see the end times. First century Judaism, they were straining forward, waiting for what would happen. First century Christianity was celebrating what had happened. And they were the same thing. The Jews just at this point did not recognize what they were looking for, what we're waiting for, this restoration, this resurrection of us into the place where God has promised, it happened. And the Christians are saying, this is it, this is it. And Paul says, I want them to be envious of what we hold. Paul's not just celebrating, though. He's implementing by trying to make the Jews jealous so that they, too, that some of them might be saved. And so in this chapter, Paul is dealing very specifically with what he's been talking about throughout this book. What about Israel? What about Israel? What about Israel? God has used them They are the branch that you've been grafted into and they can come back anytime they want. But there is a new Israel that includes the Jews and the Gentiles and all this Israel, all these people, part of the God's covenant family, will be saved. But it's not dealing just with that ethnic Israel. Any questions? Yeah, only the Israel is Jacob. And so Jacob's name was changed to Israel. His descendants became the nation of Israel. That's what Paul is dealing with here was that ethnic nation. And he's saying that not everyone who is ethnically from these people are actually what God had intended for Israel to be, that Israel was connected to a bigger promise to Abraham. And it included the world. It didn't include just those 12 tribes. Okay, so there is... Constantly throughout this book, the idea of Israel, the nation, and Israel, the covenant people of God that now includes the Gentiles. And that's what Paul's purpose is trying to do is say, God has intended a lot more than what you're seeing. God is reaching the world. God's remnant is now growing. It's not shrinking. And so God has had this plan from the very beginning. God was going to use the nation, the people, children of Abraham, to bring to light who the Messiah is and what sin was. They were magnifying that 
as he says, I'm going to use you and I'm going to magnify that sin. Why? Because that's what you're there for. You're there to be that bomb squad. Let everyone know here's the bomb and you're supposed to deal with it and then let it go because Christ is going to be the one who detonates and takes care of it. That was your purpose as a nation. You've done the job. You're still welcome into the covenant family. But then the question, so does Israel have any special standing with God? Well, I guess we have to define the word special. Do they have a privileged standing? They have what he says there. They are, you know, always loved by God. He says they are, as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. God loves them because of the promises that he's made, but they have no more right to God than we do. Because Christ changed that. Because this is taking place. Restoration is happening. The exile is over. Because Israel is ruling through the faithful Israelite, Christ. And now there's neither Jew nor Greek. We are one in Christ. That means one. Eschatology that deals with Israel in this way, all Israel is going to be saved and translates this passage in that way, is coming from a Pentecostal theology that looks at the end times through a little bit of a different prism. And a lot of that has taken place because of some of the ways that this has been translated when he talks about Israel, but then he talks about Israel and he means two different things. But I think we can see, uh, hopefully I made it clear as we were going through the context, what he meant, especially connected to what he's already said. Because he's used Israel in one verse as meaning two different things, and he used it meaning two different things here after he included the Gentiles. And so when he says all Israel will be saved, he's not talking about the ethnic Israel. He talked about them, but now he says, and the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Where's the fullness of the Gentiles coming in? See, you may have heard the fullness of the Gentiles is one day when that last Gentile says, Jesus, come into my life, then the Lord's going to come back. Having an eschatology that's out here, the fullness of the Gentiles is this. It's the remnant that is growing. The fullness of the Gentiles. All Israel will be saved. It's not putting a time limit saying, oh, that, you know, this is when it's going to happen. It's saying, no, when the full Gentiles come in, all of them are going to be saved. All who? All those who are part of this remnant that is growing in Christ. So I hate to bust your bubble if you're thinking that, well, no, as soon as that last Gentile accepts Jesus, we get to go to heaven. That's not what this is talking about. I don't believe it is. It's a nice thought. It makes you excited, thinking, oh, yes, one day someone's going to accept Jesus and we get to all go to heaven. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. I don't think, anyway. Any other questions? No? No thoughts? Okay. Let's pray. Lord, as we go through this, just Paul's words here capture it. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments, Lord, and your paths beyond tracing out. Lord, who has known your mind? Who has been your counselor? Who has ever given to you that you would have to repay us? 
Lord, from you and through you and for you, all things belong glory forever and ever. Lord, we are but branches grafted into you. Lord, we have no place to boast. And so we take our position. Lord, we are called in Christ. We are predestined in Christ. We are elect in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are glorified in Christ. And that is who we boast in. We boast in you, Lord. And we are thankful and grateful because your mercy is beyond knowing. And we are thankful for you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.